We already introduced him last week. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Of course, we're speaking here about John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the Apostle who wrote this gospel or with John the Pastor who is delivering this message to you this morning. But John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. But his stature and his impact doesn't come from his own identity. His stature and his impact comes from the one that he came to announce. Verses 7 and 8, we read, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So remember that when we look at at this gospel account, that, that John the Apostle's main purpose in writing his gospel was to bear witness to who Jesus is in order that we can find salvation in him. And John lists witness after witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The disciples bear witness. Jesus himself bears witness through his words and his actions and his miracles. The Father bears witness. The Spirit bears witness. The Scriptures bear witness. The crowds bear witness. And after the initial witness of the Apostle John himself, we're introduced to another witness, John the Baptist. Verse 19 says, And this is the testimony of John. So this morning, John the pastor is going to be discussing John the Apostle's description of John the Baptist's declaration of Jesus Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So first we're going to see from verses 19 to 22 who John wasn't. Who John wasn't. The scriptures tell us that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem in order to interrogate John. Now often in the scripture when we see a reference to the Jews, it's actually referring to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. And in verse 24 we see in parentheses, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now John here doesn't record the animosity that took place between, between John and the, John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and that probably came a little bit later on. In Matthew 3:7, we see the way that, that he directly attacked their hypocrisy. It reads, "But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance." So here these individuals who had been sent from the Pharisees asked John, Who are you? They knew that he was no ordinary individual. He probably looked like a wild man coming out of the wilderness with a a cloak of, of camel's hair, with a coat of camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. And he probably sounded like a wild man, commanding people to repent of their sins. Now, they knew that something was different about him. They knew that his appearance on the scene marked a change. Something different was about to take place. There had not been a prophet on the scene for 400 years. God had been silent. The religious authorities knew that something was up, so they sent their their religious men to investigate. They didn't send anyone. Either, not just anybody, they sent priests and Levites, and they started with this simple question, who are you? Now, if somebody asks you, who are you, how do you respond? Where do you get your identity? Men often find their identity in their careers. If somebody, when, when two men meet, most often the, the first thing that they're going to say, or one of the first things they're going to say is, what do you do for a living? Mothers often find their identity in their children. Some people find their identity through a a hockey team or a football team. And we might even identify ourselves with a godly preacher. We might say, I'm into John Piper or I'm into John MacArthur. The Jews got their identity from their lineage. And we saw that 
when we studied the book of Ruth a few weeks ago. But John didn't reply in any of these ways. So who was John the Baptist? Who was he? Luke's account of the gospel gives the greatest detail. So turn with me, please, to, to Luke chapter 1. Once he's given a, a quick introduction of verses 1 to 4, he goes into, Luke goes into great detail describing the, the prophecies surrounding the birth of John the Baptist, where, where, where the, the priest Zechariah and his barren wife Elizabeth, who are both aged, are going to miraculously give birth to John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah was, was chosen by Lot to offer incense at the altar of incense, and then the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that, he was, that his wife would bear a son whom they were to name John. And not only would Zechariah and Elizabeth have joy and gladness, but many would rejoice at the birth of John, that he would be great before the Lord, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even while he was still in his mother's womb. And he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he would go before, before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that he was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah doubted this and was struck dumb for his lack of faith. Meanwhile, Gabriel also then appeared to the Virgin Mary and told her that the Most High would overshadow her and that she would give birth to Jesus, even though she was a virgin. So when Mary, now pregnant, came to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, John leapt for joy in his mother's womb. So he wasn't even born, and he was already beginning to fulfill his role. So the men sent from the Pharisees asked him, Who are you? Verse 20, we read, He confessed but did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Remember in verse 8, He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, we probably would have resembled the light, not just because they were related or possibly even dressed similarly, but because they both carried the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John said it in Matthew 3, 2, and Jesus said it in Matthew 4, 17. But the meaning of the message and the import of the message was different. Because while John was pointing at the Messiah, Jesus was pointing at himself. So they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? So why do you think it would have been Elijah? Why specifically Elijah and not one of the other prophets? This relates to the prophecy that had been made by Gabriel at John's birth, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This prophecy was made in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now this prophecy will be fully fulfilled before Jesus returns again. But John the Baptist came as a herald bearing witness to the coming Messiah. The Pharisees wrongly thought that this would literally be Elijah. And twice in Matthew, once in Matthew eleven fourteen, and again in 17, verses 10 to 3, Jesus, would, Jesus himself would refer to John as the Elijah who was to come. But understanding the Pharisees' misunderstanding that the forerunner of Jesus would be literally Elijah, John answered, I am not. He was not literally Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a, was a type that pointed to 
the coming of John the Baptist. So then they asked, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And this time they're thinking about the prophecy made by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. The Lord your, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and to him you will listen. And again, John answered, no. So they've got a problem. So far they've been, they've been stonewalled by John. Every time they, they ask him a question, who he is, he refuses to fully answer. He just denies what they're questioning. Leon Morris points out that, that all they've got so far is a string of denials. So they turned to him and said in verse 22, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now John knew his role. So he didn't reply, I'm the son of Zechariah, the priest, and Elizabeth. He didn't reply, I am the Baptist, even though he was, he didn't reply, I'm the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, even though he was. He didn't reply, I'm a prophet, even though he was, because his identity was found in the one that he served. His identity was found in Jesus Christ. He existed for Jesus Christ. He existed to, to prepare the way for him, and he existed to bear witness of him. So now let's look at who John was. We've already seen who he wasn't. Now let's see who he was. And we'll find out who he was by what he did. So firstly, in verse 25, we see that he prepared the way for Jesus. And again, John did not exist for himself. He existed for Jesus. So he responded to their questioning in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. This was yet another prophecy that was fulfilled by John. Each of the four Gospels includes this quotation. So the voice here, the voice is directing his hearers to Jesus. He's not directing attention to himself. He's pointing them to Jesus. He's telling them to prepare, to be ready for the coming of the Messiah is at hand. Remove all obstacles. So they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Or in other words, if you're nobody, if you're just a voice, what gives you the right to baptize? What gives you the right to baptize? We already saw what gave him the right to baptize in chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. John the Baptist was a man sent from God. His authority was a divine authority. He was at coming at the command of Almighty God to prepare the way for God the Son. And that divine authority gave him the right to command people to repent. So he came, he says, to baptize. Now we've transliterated the Greek word baptize from, from baptismo, which actually comes from the word bapto, which means um, to, to dip in or to dip under. And baptism then was by means of full immersion. It wasn't a, a foreign practice. It was regularly part of, of converting from another religion to Judaism. And other religions at that time also practiced this form of baptism. But as Leon Morris explains, the novelty in John's case and the sting behind his practice was that he applied to the Jews the ceremony which was for Gentiles coming into the faith. It was appropriate that Gentiles were defiled and would require ritual cleansing before becoming Jews, but that Jews would need to be cleansed was horrible in their eyes. So do you understand that? What, what 
what's happening here is something that, that they had relegated to the lowly Gentiles. John is now commanding them. He's commanding Jews to repent and be baptized. They didn't think that they had anything to repent of or to be baptized from because they thought that they were part of the one true religion. But John is telling them, repent. Repent. Now, John baptized with water, but his baptism was no merely ritual cleansing. It was a baptism of repentance. Matthew records the whole statement in verse in chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. So in the book of Acts, we, we find out that, that John's baptism was really just a starting place. It was a starting place. Turn, please, to Acts chapter 19. In verses 3 to 5, when the apostle Paul was in Ephesus, he found some disciples who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this baptism is also referred to in Romans chapter 6. In verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a symbol representing our union with Jesus Christ, that we are joined with him in his life and his death and his resurrection. But John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And those who came to him for baptism were turning away from their, their sin, but they didn't know that the one to whom they were supposed to turn was standing right there amongst them. Now, in order to come to Christ, we must turn away from sin. So John came to prepare the way, proclaiming repentance. Repentance. He was clearing from the road the obstacles that were in the way of people coming to the knowledge of Jesus. Beloved, worship of the one true God is not come as you are. It is not come as you are. The thought of, of coming to the holy God without repentance is the worst form of hypocrisy. To think that we can hold on to our sin with one hand and hold on to Jesus with the other is abhorrent in God's sight. So we turn away from our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. And that is true for everyone who is born again. They have turned from their sin to Jesus, and they continue to turn from their sin to Jesus. But those who did not know, these men who were sent from the, the Pharisees, they did not know Jesus personally, and they did not know him savingly. But John's baptism, if you look at verse 31, John's baptism was not only for repentance. Turning from sin wasn't enough. As I just mentioned, it was a turning from sin, but it's a turning to something else or someone else. John 1.31 says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. 
So at one point, John didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, and he would have his doubts later on when his life was in jeopardy. And he would send his his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? Most commentators say that, that when it refers to John not knowing him, that this, this came before, that, that he was referring to, to before he had baptized Jesus, and that it was the, the baptism of Jesus, and particularly what happened at the baptism of Jesus, that showed that Jesus really was the Son of God. He really was the Messiah. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Now, in a few moments, we're going to be baptizing Samantha Taylor. But Samantha's baptism is not a baptism like that of John. Samantha is being baptized into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John's was a baptism of repentance, preparing for Christ. But Samantha has already repented and turned her heart to Jesus Christ. Samantha's baptism is to reveal the Messiah to you. Samantha wants to declare that she knows Jesus savingly. She wants to show everyone here that Jesus Christ is her Savior and her Lord. She wants to show everyone that his righteous life has been credited to her, that his death was in the place of her death. And that his resurrection means that she has been raised to new life and will be resurrected again at the return of Jesus Christ. So as we baptize Samantha later on, I want you to think about these things. To think about what baptism really means. But not only did did John come to prepare the way for Jesus, he also claimed to declare Christ's preeminence. Look at verses 27 and 30. John said in verse 27, He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He comes back to it again in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And he'd already said in verse 15 that he that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this is a very important principle. All of the the Gospels quote John as saying this. Even though Jesus was, John says that even though Jesus was before him, John really was before him in the natural sense because he was born several months before before Jesus was born. John says in in chapter 3, verse 30, I must increase, sorry, he must increase, but I must decrease. So So that's where we see that what John came to do was to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. That was that was his main purpose in life, was to show Jesus as the Messiah. Now, he did have one more thing to do. He was going to testify against Herod and then die at his hands. But John existed for Jesus. Jesus came before him because Jesus came before all things. We saw back, in, back last week in, in verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus created all things. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So in every sense, except when it comes to his physical birth, Jesus was before John. Now John, of course, was no lightweight. We've already seen that Jesus referred to him as the greatest born among women. Now think about that honor. Think about that honor, to be called by the Son of God, the greatest man who has ever been born from women. There is no higher honor that can be conferred 
No higher honor. But Jesus went on to say that that he that there was that he, the least in the kingdom of heaven was above John. These were the people who had died in Christ, those who had come anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And that they had now entered into that full covenant relationship as they died from this life and entered eternal life with Jesus. But in this life, no one, no one was greater than John. Now on Friday night when we met at Beulah Lake and the women met at Starbucks, we discussed Moses and Jesus from Hebrews chapter 3. So please turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 3. In verse 3, we read that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now the Jews saw Moses as one of the greatest men of all time. But the writer of the Hebrews there is saying that the builder of the house is immeasurably greater than the house itself. He's saying that that Jesus is God because Jesus is the builder of all things. And so just as Jesus is immeasurably greater than Moses, Jesus is also immeasurably greater than John. So Jesus is far, far above John the Baptist. And that's what John the Baptist was declaring. John also came to declare, third point, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Chapter 1, verse 29. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he he says the same thing there in verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God. Now John is the only New Testament writer to refer to Jesus directly as the Lamb of God. He does so in these places here and also 27 times in the book of Revelation. Now for a Jew, the connotation of the Lamb of God should have been obvious. It, It goes back to the Passover Lamb from Exodus chapter 12. But it goes back even further to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was going to offer his son Isaac as a a burnt sacrifice. And Isaac asks where the lamb was, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says in 22.8, God will provide the lamb. And then so clearly in in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the clearest Old Testament passages about the coming of Christ, we see again that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And then verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Father crushed the Son in our place. This is who the Lamb of God is. It wasn't because of his sin. Jesus was sinless. It was because of our sin. Look back at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. But we need to ask here, did Jesus take away the sin of every man, woman, and child who ever lived on the planet? If Jesus died for everyone, for the world without exception, then the cross is limited in its power because not everyone is saved. Consider those who turned away from God before Jesus came. Consider those who never heard of Jesus. Consider those who out and out rejected Jesus. Consider Judas. Did Jesus take away their sins? No. For them, everlasting fire is reserved. So clearly, their sin has not been taken away. The other option is to realize that Jesus died for his people. That Jesus died for his people. True, this limits the extent of the cross if Jesus died for the elect. But then the cross, although it is sufficient to save everyone, it is efficient to save the elect. This lines up with the testimony of Scripture. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 20, tw- sorry, 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for, for the forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 9, 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. It doesn't say all. Now, we're going to be spending more time on this in a few weeks when we look at John chapter 3. But when we study the word world, we need to understand how it's used in context. There's several different ways that, that John uses, John the Apostle uses the word, the word world. And we need to look at the immediate context in order to determine what's really happening here. We need to also look at the biblical context so that Scripture does not, does not disagree with Scripture. Because Scripture never disagrees with Scripture. We also need to consider the, the, the social, the cultural context, the milieu into which Jesus came and those to whom John the Apostle was writing. But we'll spend a lot more time on that in a few weeks. I want us to see now, though, that, that, that John also came to baptize Jesus. Look at verses 32 and 33. Now, John doesn't go into great detail about the baptism of Jesus. He seems to be referring to something that has already taken place when he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, the three synoptic Gospels describe fully the events of the baptism of Jesus, but, but turn for a moment, please, to, to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll just, just quickly read through the account of what actually happened at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
Now, Matthew, if you back up to verse 11, includes John saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, and there's one coming after me who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is the destiny of those who do not come to Jesus in repentance. For Jesus will come back to judge the world. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so the baptism is yet another testimony of Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. Now it's really unclear why John in his account doesn't include the testimony of the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In a, in a book that's, that's written to give, a, give account, to bear witness to, to Jesus as God the Son, it, it's really puzzling why he wouldn't include that. But nonetheless, every member of the Trinity was there at Jesus' baptism. Of course, Jesus, God the Son, was there himself. The Spirit is there descending upon him like a dove and remaining on him. And the Father is bearing testimony to Jesus as God the Son. So, John, so Jesus' baptism, John's baptism of Jesus, is yet another witness that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And finally, there in verse 34, John says plainly, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, the greatest of all men, testifies who Jesus is. Samantha has seen and borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God. We who are in Christ have seen and borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God. Like John the Baptist, we get our identity as Christians from the one we serve. But truth be told, everyone gets their identity from the one they serve. If you live your life in service to the world, the flesh, and the devil, then that is where you will find your identity. If you do not turn to Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and face eternity in hell. But it does not have to be that way. Because God provided a lamb to take away the sin of the world. I talked about how John the Baptist was sent from God and had his authority to command repentance as the one who was sent from God. Now, I don't make any aspirations to being John the Baptist, but I am also sent from God to declare to you, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Holy God. We who are in Christ know that the only way that we could ever approach you is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. 
and his sacrifice that paid the debt of our sin. That we can only come before you because of your grace and mercy and love. And so, Father, I pray that you would grant repentance to each heart here. Lord, that those who do not know you would know Jesus. Lord, that they would turn from sin and turn to him. Lord, that you would bring life where once was death. Lord, we pray that you would do this all in the power of your Holy Spirit, by your grace and for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, God the Son. We're now going to sing our final hymn, and I'm going to ask Joel to come up and lead, and Samantha will um, get ready for, for Samantha's baptism. No cannonballs, okay? It's such a, a joy and a privilege to uh, to be able to to baptize Samantha uh, today. Just uh, it's it's known Samantha, I guess, for about five years, and uh, it, it was just so amazing to see the change that, that God has is wrought in our heart. Uh, Samantha, she'll share a testimony, but uh, but um, Samantha had actually made a profession of faith. Uh, a few years ago, but it, it became evident that uh, that um, that she did not savingly know Jesus, and uh, by the, the fruit of her life, and so um, so many people have built into her and directly challenged her with gospel truths, and and just to see how how the church has come together, and we've so many of us have, have been a part of what the Lord wanted to do in Samantha's life. And it's really a testimony, again, of, of what God does with his church. And so then here, a little over a month ago, Samantha um, said that she wanted to commit her life to Jesus as her Lord and Savior, that she was willing to let go of everything that was holding her back and serve him with her whole life. And uh, and the change that has been wrought has just been glorious, Samantha, to see the way that, that your, your face has changed, your smile that we didn't really see much of before is just there all the time now, and your your brother and and mom have have all t have both testified to the to the changes we see it, and God has glorified Samantha. So I want us to see here as Samantha is baptized, how this is a picture of her being united with Jesus Christ in His life and His death and His resurrection. So, Samantha, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Have you turned away from your sin to follow, follow him as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and that he one day, too, will come back to call you home to be with him? Yes. And on... Your profession of faith, it is my joy and privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I would have to say I wasn't exactly brought up in a Christian home. 
I went to church every Sunday and attended Sunday school since I was a kid. In Sunday school, I would learn who Jesus was and what he did for us. I always thought, oh yay, another Bible story I will forget. In grade 10, I started smoking and I stole smokes from my parents and I didn't realize that they knew until one night I woke up and my mom and dad were talking and I heard them say that they knew I was smoking and I stole the smokes from them. I asked God to help me quit smoking and now he helped me with that and I have stopped. After I became a Christian, I realized that I had gotten into the wrong crowd and that I was following their actions. Also in grade 10, I wanted to end my life because I didn't think anyone was going to anything was going to happen with my life and everyone was making fun of me. I always was getting cyberbullied and to this day I uh, I still get cyberbullied, but now I have Jesus to help me. I was I always thought, why do I need Jesus when I have friends to help me? What does he have that my friends don't? It was about five years ago when I, that I started to believe who Jesus really was. But also about five years ago, I thought I was saved, but there was no spiritual fruit. And I would not honor my mom or dad. I wouldn't do anything that was asked of me from anyone. Before I became a Christian, as of December of last year, I started cutting myself to get rid of all the pain. But really, cutting yourself doesn't get rid of the pain because after you have the emotional pain. I would pray and ask God to help me stop cutting, but it seemed like he didn't really care or didn't want to help me, so I stopped praying. I wasn't really, I knew I wasn't normal. It wasn't normal to relieve pain by cutting. I always asked myself, why do I, why would I give up cutting if nothing else works? How would I know that becoming a Christian would help instead? As of now, I have not cut since July 19th. I know I love Christ because he sent his son to die on the cross and pay the debt for my sins. The day before I got saved, my thought was, what had God ever done for me? Slowly, he changed me. After days of praying, I would, that I would have to suffer like this anymore. I came to a slow realization that God was always there. He loved us while we were still sinners, before he, we loved him. That is when I realized that there is no reason, there is a reason to live, and that reason is to live for God. He is there to help you. I understood that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins because we were all born sinners. I have learned that Jesus died on the cross for his sins at church, youth group, Bible hour, and gospel meeting I would attend once in a while at my grandma's church. For the longest time, I knew that he was calling for me, his child, to worship him and teach others about the man who saved me and my salvation. What makes it even better is that I know what I felt was real. I finally feel at peace knowing who God, who my God is. No one can truly ever understand that feeling when I, that I had that moment I was saved, unless you have been through it too. Nothing can ever compare to the love that I have for my Lord and Savior. The day I got saved was, I was thinking there is no hope. I thought there is no point in getting saved. What am I getting saved from? I knew I, knew I needed Jesus, and so for at least six months, I would go from wanting to get saved and rejecting God. So I would do that for the six months. Life also got to the point where I didn't want to try anymore at life. I wanted to give up. It got to the point where I said I was tired of trying for a life that was never mine. Then I realized God never gives up on you, so I wasn't going to give up on him. I realized that Jesus was my only hope, and there was a point to get saved, and then then I answered God's call.
Since getting saved, I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with one of my friends that started drinking, cutting, and doing drugs. She came to me asking me how to stop all of those things. I basically told her that she needs to pray, and Jesus is her only hope, and she needs to trust the Lord will help her through all her trials. She told me that there is no need for Jesus, and he doesn't seem to help her, and he can't, and she said... She said... If he helps everyone, then why does he let all my hard times happen? And why does he let my family fight all the time? I told her that God does not put you in any situation if he thinks he can't handle it. She ended her friendship, but she does come back to me once in a while. But now when she comes back to me, she makes fun of me and swears at me. I left her with a verse from Proverbs 3. The verse says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. To be honest, five years ago, when I thought I was saved, wasn't true salvation because I didn't exactly understand what a Christian really was. I thought a Christian was just acting like one only on Sundays and being nice to people, not using bad words like swearing and not being angry with others around me. And I didn't think we had to try to glorify him. That, that is why I realized was not truly saved. There is more to it than just reading the Bible and acting like a nice person. I want to get to be baptized because in, it's an obedience to God. And in the Bible, it commands you to be baptized, as it says in Matthew 28:19. And I would like to publicly show that I am willing to live for Christ and I appreciate what he has done for me. I realized I need my need in life was not to just succeed or have friends. My need was to have Jesus.